This year is really excellent. It's really trying to put the work that we do in the ministry that we share into the community in a lot of tangible ways. And so I hope you will come down and see what it is that we are doing. I will not wear these the whole time. Um, but I am here to remind you that this is the month Really, the fall is the time when we invite all of the people here at St. Michael to consider how you will help support our shared mission and ministry next year. We ask you to make a pledge of support, a financial support, in addition to the time and the talent that you already give so that we can make plans to expand our ministries in 2023. And so, as I noted last week, every Sunday you are invited to come have some fun with Jesus. And so I've got Jesus right here next to me today. Those of you online, I know you cannot see Jesus, but he's sitting right here. And I want you to come and have some fun with Jesus on Sunday to play bingo every week in October. We're playing bingo with Jesus. And each of those weeks, we feature a ministry partner here in our community. And there's always a prize if you go and you do your entire bingo card for the week. And the glasses were a prize. The blinking necklace was a prize. And who knows what's going to happen this coming Sunday. You have to come find out. And so I thank you all for your support. And now we'll lose those. Um, someone said, isn't it weird to look through pink glasses like that? Because I have been wearing them to multiple meetings throughout the last couple weeks. And I said, well, you know, I see the world through rose-colored glasses anyway. So it's just appropriate. All right, a reminder that you can go and listen to all of our old lessons. stmichael.org slash rbs is where they are. We have fixed the podcast, as I said a few weeks ago, so you can get, my gosh, I think it's like 180 lessons or something like that. So you can listen anytime you want to whatever you want. Um, and I want to encourage you today, in particular because of the luncheon that is happening downstairs, but just because we're nice, Look around the room after the study and go introduce yourself to someone that you don't know. I bet every person in here has seen someone else in here a few times and thought, I really don't know who they are. Or even worse, you ready for this? Even worse, you've already learned their name and you've forgotten, right? <laughs> I know, I know how that works. I have an easy solution for you. Just introduce yourself. And then they will naturally introduce themselves. And then you get over that awkward hump because everyone likes to be called by their name. And so you can totally solve that problem. Do not go without saying hello to the person that's near you that you don't know. So we will jump in with a prayer and we will get started. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of this day. We ask that you help us to open up space inside of our hearts and minds. Help us to put down the things that stress us and worry us and cause us anxiety and fear. Help us to allow space for your spirit to fill us up, that we will be filled up so well that we will be able to open ourselves to your word, let your spirit seep into our bones. We can leave this space today renewed and refilled and inspired to be your hands and feet of love out in the world, that we will not let your good work stop with us, but we will become vessels so that we can be the blessing you call us to be out in the world. Today, I ask your prayers upon all those we hold in our hearts and minds. Be with those who are sick, those who are scared, those who are isolated, those who are afraid. Be with those who are nearing the end of their lives, and help them to know your presence always. 
All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, my friends, a reminder, I like questions. So if you've got them, share them, because it's going to help somebody else in this room. We have three, le three sections of our lesson today. The first section, we're just going to recap how we got here. And we're going to recap how we got here because today we are finally getting to David. And as you noted, or as we've noted multiple times, David's the real meat of this year's study. And it's taken us a few weeks, but we are finally at David. So I want to just remember how we got there. And then we've got two more sections. The first is David's anointing as king. And the second will be David and Saul and their complicated relationship and how it begins. So I want you to turn to chapter 16, 1 Samuel chapter 16. And we're going to read a bit in just a moment. But before we read, we're going to start with a simple recap. We've had two important characters up to this point, Samuel and Saul. A reminder that Samuel was born in a very sacred way. Samuel's parents were unable to have a child, and so they prayed to have a child, and Samuel was given to them, and then they immediately gave Samuel over into the temple to be a Nazarite. And as a reminder, the Nazarite is a simply a way of living that constructs a particular limit around your life. So they basically gave Samuel over in order to live a life in the temple as a priest. And so Samuel worked under Eli and then heard God calling him and responded. Remember, your servant is listening. You know, here I am, Lord, your servant is listening. And so Samuel has been a priest. Samuel served as a judge in the same way that there were judges prior to this period of time. Then Samuel transitioned to be a prophet. And so Samuel has had a dynamic life up to this point. And Samuel, as a prophet, anointed the first king over Israel, Saul. Saul is, as we have noted, a, an imperfect character. Saul is messy. Saul's pretty good at most stuff, but he's not quite the unifying force that we will see David become. It is not necessarily Saul's fault that his humanity has gotten in the way, but his humanity has gotten in the way. And it's instructive for us how that humanity can be problematic. So part of what we're going to look at with David beginning today and then on for most of this year is a difference with Saul that is really important for us. Saul makes mistakes, David makes mistakes. I would contend that David makes far more dramatic, terrible mistakes than Saul makes. But Saul is headstrong. And Saul does not go back to God with the repentance, does not turn back toward God repentant in his heart where David does all the time. And David's humility and repentance is what keeps him yoked so closely to God's spirit. And that's really the model that people have lifted up over time. The reason David is so highly regarded and why David was so critical to who Jesus is is not because David is perfect, way far from perfect, but because in his imperfection, David relies only on God. That's the biggest thing for us to take away this entire year, is that David's humility and faithfulness and repentance is most important, not whether he does things right or wrong, but that when he does things wrong, he turns back to God. 
Saul's big Achilles heel is he just never repents. And so that's instructive for us. And we're going to talk a bit more about that in the end. All right. Any questions that are fundamental or foundational about the characters of Samuel and Saul up to this point that will be helpful as we transition to David? Yes, ma'am. I really like your question. The question is, just to repeat for all of our good, God being all-knowing seemed to make an odd choice in the person of Saul. And is that choice potentially intended to be instructive for us? I love the way you're thinking about that, so I'm going to answer that in two parts. The first is, I believe the storyteller intends for Saul as the choice to be instructive for us. And so the way this story is constructed is absolutely intending for us to learn something about the persons of both Saul, David, and Solomon. They are all three very different. They are the only three kings of what you might consider the united kingdom of Israel. And I say that almost with an asterisk because the kingdom's never truly united under Saul. We talk about Saul as the first king, and that's true, and there is no other king at the time, but he really is unable to unite the kingdom. David's really the one that unites the kingdom. But for a time, there's only a single king. Saul, David, and Solomon, only one king. All three are incredibly different. Saul, as we said, is very messy and unrepentant. David is even messier and very repentant, And Solomon has all of the wisdom because he made the right choice when asked by God what he wants. And we'll get to that part of the story too. So all three can be lifted up and I think are intended to be lifted up as examples of both what to do and what not to do as the story is being told. But remember who's telling this story. This story is being told by people who have already been in exile in Babylon and they are either hoping to return, or they have returned. So most scholars think that these stories were written pretty much in the exile period, but they were likely not finished until after the Jewish people had returned from exile. Why that's important is, like any good editor, you might have 90% of the story done, but when you look back and try to tweak little details, When you've got more hindsight, you tweak the details in a more specific way. I really do think the way the storyteller is telling this story is meant to help the Jewish people who return from exile to not make certain mistakes or to live in certain ways. So what to do, what not to do. Your question about God's intention is one that I really don't think we can ever discern. Um, As Episcopalians, we know that we can never know God's full intention. And we can begin to see God's intentions working out through the people who are telling the story in this particular way. I think we have to caution ourselves to never assume that God said exactly what the storyteller says God said, or that God did exactly what the storyteller says God did. It doesn't mean that they're not telling the story in a faithful way, 
But with each generation, we learn more. And I think I've said this in here before, but as Anglicans, we really do believe that we get to know God more and more as we move forward. And so we may have done things in a certain way in the past. We've learned to do them better. And so now we have to do them better. And it doesn't mean we go flog ourselves for the things that happened 100 years ago, but we need to identify that the way we did stuff 100 years ago is not as good as what we know to do now. So let's do it better now. And that kind of growth happens over time. God is characterized in particular ways all the way through the Old Testament. And I want us to resist assuming that the way the storyteller tells a story is exactly how God was or is or spoke or did or any of the number of those things. Because as Christians, we see God's full revelation in the person of Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus does is try to give us the most complete look at God's character. And there are a lot of things that God is supposedly saying or doing in the Old Testament that does not quite gel with the full revelation we see of God in Jesus. And so I think if God seems a bit manipulative, a bit mean, a bit spiteful, any of those things, then we have to hold that at arm's length. We have to ask the question what the storyteller is wanting us to know, not necessarily why God did or didn't do that thing. Does that sound good? Okay. Any other questions? All right, so now that we've done this sort of recap, let's jump into chapter 16. I'm actually going to start at the very end of chapter 15, but it's probably on the same page. Chapter 15, verse 34. We're just going to set the scene because Samuel has just learned that Saul is no longer the person who has God's preference as king. And Samuel's sort of bummed. So we're going to start with Samuel's lament over Saul. Chapter 15, verse 34, and we're going to read right on into the first few verses of chapter 16. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord was sorry that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. We'll pause there. I want us to understand Saul as being a very problematic character here. Saul is God's servant. I mean, I'm sorry, I said Saul. I meant Samuel. That Samuel is problematic as God's servant here. Samuel has given his entire life over to serving God. From the very beginning, when his mother had him after having prayed to have a child, Samuel was handed over to the temple. Samuel has lived this entire life of service, and even when the people wanted a king and God didn't want to give them a king, Samuel was faithful enough to go anoint a person, knowing that that was not God's will, and he anointed Saul, God's choice, but now God has chosen not to continue being faithful to Saul. Samuel 
is caught in the middle here. Samuel has been faithful. He's done the right stuff. But Samuel is so disappointed. And it is such a real feeling for us. If we can put ourselves in Samuel's shoes, it's difficult to exactly, I mean, to really parse this out in a way that we can all kind of touch on. But I think we can probably all kind of grasp this if we put ourselves in the shoes of a parent who watches their child make bad choices. If any of us, those of us in here who are parents or those of us who are aunts or uncles or we've been a mentor to a young person, anything like that, and we've poured ourselves into this child only to see a child just make bad choices, it is deeply disappointing. And it doesn't mean that as a parent you've done bad things. You may not have made a mistake. I mean, none of us are perfect. But you can't necessarily point to, oh, when I did that one thing that sent them down this path. No, it's not that. But there is this profound sadness when you watch someone you love or that you care for, or you've poured a lot into, kind of just go off in a direction that either you hoped they wouldn't go or maybe you explicitly told them not to go. And now you're lamenting and you're sad and you're kind of in this pit. And Samuel's sort of in that moment where he knows he didn't do wrong things, but he feels so sad about where things have gone with Saul. And then just as God does, and I think this is so very true, God shows up and says, why so sad? Why are you lamenting? As if that one moment is going to ruin my capacity to do good things in the future. I mean, how many times do we have a relationship or a moment in our life where we feel such loss and such sadness and such disappointment that it almost feels like that's it, game over. But then God shows up and says, nope, there's plenty more coming. And it's on us. It is on Samuel and it's on us to have enough faith that God can still turn whatever bad thing has happened into something good. It does not mean we get what we want. It almost never means that. It almost never means that things go back to the way we had hoped they would be, even though they weren't. No, that doesn't happen. Tragedy strikes. Terrible things happen. People make bad choices, accidents, all of the above. But that doesn't mean that life ends. That just simply means that God is going to call us into something new. And we may really not want to do the new thing. I mean, there are people in this room, I am positive, who would give anything to have had the bad thing not happen. That's not God's promise. God's promise is that good can come from anything bad. And even if we don't want the good, God's there to give it to us. And that's a really complicated moment of faith. Very complicated. And Samuel is, in a small way, in that moment right here. And so God comes and says, Why the long face? I've made my choice. It's happened. It's over. You cannot go back in time, and you cannot change the past. But fill your horn with oil. Get up, because you still have good things to do. And Samuel gets up. And he goes and he finds Jesse. And he finds Jesse in Bethlehem, and he begins a new path of faithfulness. So now let's look at what happens. 
verse 3 of chapter 16. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? I'm going to pause. That's really kind of funny. So I'm thinking Samuel has a reputation, and Samuel's reputation must be a touch scary because as Samuel's coming with his heifer, so he's not moving fast. I don't know if you've ever tried to move a cow, but <laughs> he's, not, he's not coming quickly. And so here he is walking a cow down the road. So you know the people of the village know he's coming. And Bethlehem's not really a place Samuel would go normally. And so my guess is that people have seen him, maybe like the kids have seen him, you know, they've been playing in the field, they see Samuel trying to drag this cow down the road. And so they run to tell their parents and their parents tell their friends and their friends tell the leaders of the village and they think, oh crap, why is Samuel coming here? I mean, they don't want Samuel coming there. It's like, I, I mean, you know, in a small way, we probably all know how this feels. I know, I certainly know, sometimes I walk into a room where no one expects me to come and everyone's face kind of goes, oh no. And I think, no, it's not bad. It's just me, hi. Um, and so Samuel's dragging his cow down the road and the people of Bethlehem are saying, are you coming to be nice? Okay, so back to verse five. Samuel said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So here we are, verse 6. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest but he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then sent out and went to Ramah. And we'll pause there. I love this passage. It is such good stuff. Samuel has, in his faithfulness, tried to turn over a new leaf and let Saul go. And he takes his oil and he goes to find Jesse, who he probably doesn't know from Adam, and says, I need to see all your boys. And so Jesse calls all of his sons in, all seven of them, marches him in front of Samuel, and one by one by one, Samuel says, no, no, next, no. And finally, in confusion, Samuel says to Jesse, is this everybody? Because Samuel had shown up thinking he's going to find a new king. And seven guys passed by in front of him, and seven times they are not the right person. 
And then Jesse says, well, no, I mean, there's the baby. He's out with the sheep. I mean, he's not the one, right? And Samuel says, you got to bring him. I have to see him. And then he walks in, boom, he's the one. It's a wonderful moment. I want to point out, literarily, something odd about the story. When's the first time you actually hear his name used? David's name is not used in this story until the very end. He is called from the field. He has walked in front of Samuel. Samuel knows he's the one. He is anointed. And it's not until the very end of this entire section that David's name even comes up. What is interesting about that is either the storyteller just doesn't have a good editor. That's possible. Or David is such a profoundly known character that you didn't even have to use his name. Everybody knew. There would not be a person reading this story who did not already know that Samuel was going to find David. Way back when he said, go to Bethlehem, everyone's like, here, he's going to find David. So they didn't even use his name until the very end. And I find that a little interesting. Those are those little notes as you read through that I would love for you to start to pick up on what David's first named there after verses of talking about him. It's a little odd thing, but I think it in it reveals to us just how profoundly important David is. You don't even have to use his name. Everyone knows who you're talking about. Did I see your hand? Yeah, so the question being, is it possible that David's identity was shielded from Saul? 100%. We're going to see in the last section today that there is a complicated relationship between David and Saul. And for a while, Saul does not realize that David has been anointed. It's very awkward. And the way the story is told makes it even more awkward. And we're going to get to that next section of chapter 16 in just a moment. Before we move off of this anointing moment, I do want to just emphasize there is a shift here. There is a fork in the road of our story that is incredibly important for us to understand. Jesus comes from the line of David. The Messiah comes from the line of David. For the Jewish people, this moment when David is named and anointed, this begins the arc of their hopefulness. There is, in the entirety of the Bible, an arc of salvation. It is salvation stories that are connected like pearls on a string. There is a constant arc that moves toward the salvation of humanity, that moves toward justice, that moves toward grace. And this is a moment when that arc shifts away from what had been essentially the problem of Saul toward the solution of David. But it is never really about even just David, because who's writing this? These are people who are coming out of exile. This is hundreds of years that this story is being written after David lived. The people love David, yes, and they're going to tell David's story in a really powerful way, yes. But who David represents is the promise of the Messiah, always. And so from this point on, that promise is really baked into the way the story is told. Even as the kingdoms decline and go into exile, 
the promise of the Messiah reigns over everything else. Now, we, of course, as Christians, know that that promise gets fulfilled in the person of Jesus, but the Old Testament is not being written that way. The Old Testament's being written in a way that they don't know what's going to happen. They only know that they've been promised to have someone come and deliver them and save them. This is that moment where we have a fork in the road and we go toward David, and it's not just for David's sake. It is for the sake of fulfilling that very particular promise. Yes. What is the last thing you said? Why do you, so the, the question is, what is the consecration of Jesse and his son? And what, what is the actual consecration? What happens within? Oh, thank you. Okay, not the anointing, but the consecrating of the family? Yes. Yeah. So what is actually happening there could be a few different things. It could simply be a blessing. It could be a prayer together. There is something about this moment where Samuel is beginning a new branch of the story. And it starts with Jesse. We, of course, know that the promise from the prophets is that from the root of Jesse will come a new branch. That's the Messiah. So, yes, it's the line of David. And we talk about the Messiah being part of the Davidic kingship. But the prophets talk about the Messiah coming out of the stump of Jesse. And so, of course, I mean, that's perfectly sensible. David's father, Jesse, it's all the same family line. But Jesse seems to have an important prophetic quality. It's not only David as a king, but it's the entire family system. And so, in a sense, we get the connectedness of the family from Jesse to David to Solomon, father to son, that really starts us on this new line it's most likely that the consecration of the family puts a nice ritualistic point on that theological idea. So it's not necessarily that they are now better than they were, but in a theological sense, they've been blessed to do something in particular. It's almost as if when you are baptized, confirmed, ordained, whatever that is, there is a sacramental acknowledgement that something special is happening at this point, that what has been is not going to be what will be, that there is a shift being made. And that general consecration of Jesse's family notes that they are now not who they once were. And it's through Jesse and then to David that a new thread of God's salvation story is being laid out. Does that kind of make sense? I do think that one of the things that the writers know when they tell the story is what will end up happening with the kingdoms. And we should always keep that in our minds. Whether it's Samuel anointing Saul or anointing David or later with Solomon, the writers of these stories know the kingdom's going to fall. So we can see the way they tell the story 
as always leading us toward that reality. The kingdom devolves, you get north and south, they both are fall and are taken into exile, and as the people come back, one of the things that the Israelites, the Jewish people, don't want to do again is have a king. This repetition and redundancy about God not wanting the people to have a king is really meant to be instructive to the people after the exile to not make that same mistake. So as they come out of exile, it might be easy for them to understand that, well, the kingdoms fell because the Assyrians and the Babylonians and, of course, the Persians that take over Babylon, they're all stronger than us. So we want to be strong too. Initially, why did they want the king? Because the Philistines were too strong. They wanted a king to unite them, all those tribes, to be able to resist and defend against the Philistines. So the Philistines are nothing like the Babylonians and then the Persians. And so it would make great sense that coming out of exile, knowing Persia's just right up there, Cyrus the Great let them out of exile to come back and rebuild Jerusalem. He could very easily march his troops right back down and take them over again. How easy would it be for the Jews to make the same mistake and want a king to unite them to defend them against the outside aggressor? And so as we are telling the story, Perhaps one of the most important truths underlying everything is a king is not going to save you. That's really what the storyteller is trying to get across in the way that the story is told. Now, there are lots of little jukes and jives around the story, and David's story is so entertaining and dramatic, you're really going to love it. But Ultimately, they want to make sure that the Israelites do not make the same mistake again. And what is true for us in the same way is that we can put our faithfulness into people. We can be guided by the world in particular, but also just our own fears to place faith in a particular person or a particular worldly group, you name it, it can take many, many forms, and that faithfulness in the world will always fail us. That's really the meat of this story. Over and over again, people make the mistake of thinking that the world is going to save them, not God. And over and over and over again, they find out they were wrong. And so all of us in our own particular way can let that sink in if we are brave enough to let that sink in, if we are willing to allow this idea to actually break through the very firm shell that we have created around our own identity to understand that we, in many ways, and sometimes in very harmful ways, have placed our faith in something in this world, and we get mad about stuff, and we get mean to other people about stuff, and we get down and depressed about stuff, all because our faithfulness has been put in worldly things. And what we are really being encouraged to do through this story and through countless other stories in the Bible is to make sure our faithfulness is rooted in God alone. The world is not, in and of itself, bad. But when we let the world define who we are and how we act, then it gets in the way of what God really wants for us. I heard a quote the other day um, that was, we only doubt God when we forget what he's already done. 
And I loved that quote. It was actually, it was Cece Winans. She had a little concert and I was watching it on YouTube and I love Cece. If you have not listened to Cece recently, I highly encourage you, you'll feel good. Um, I want to also note, she's a gospel singer. Yeah, I'm looking at a bunch of Episcopalians and they're like, who? Yes, um, she's wonderful. And she used this quote during this concert, we only doubt God when we forget what he's already done. And I thought, man, that is so succinct. And that kind of undergirds almost every important biblical lesson that I ever talk about, which is you kind of just forgot God is faithful and that God is present and that God has promised to make good out of anything that happens. We let the fear get in our way and we let our pain get in our way and our heartbreak. And it's, it's hard to just not let that happen. We all feel and we all experience bad things, but to be reminded that God's faithfulness carries us through is a good thing. All right, lastly in this section, Oh, seriously, it's a, oh, I talk too long. Okay, last in this section, I want to note something that is a wonderful, common idea in the way that biblical stories are told, and that is that God uses the least among the people to do the most. And so we get this explicitly in the story of David. Jesse says, Jesse hears from Samuel, hey, show me your sons, and he, I can just, I can see it in my mind. He's got eight boys. Well, not all eight can come into the house because like all the sheep are outside. Like somebody's got to stay with the sheep. And so he brings in the seven older ones because certainly it's not going to be the youngest. Duh. And so he brings in the seven. The youngest is taking care of all the animals. Those seven, not them. And so God finds the smallest, like the literal smallest, the youngest, the baby, the one whose father didn't even deign to bring him in the house and show him to Samuel. And God says, there he is. And over and over and over again in stories, that is a very common theme. The person who is not respected, the person who does not have power, the person who does not have wealth, the person who does not have authority, the person who, on and on and on, that's who God uses. And of course we see this in Jesus. Jesus is so inconveniently faithful to all the outcasts. And so for any of us who find ourselves as being kind of in the norm, we have to tell ourselves all the time that Jesus spent his time with those who were outside the norm. They were not the wealthy, they were not the powerful, they were not the well-liked, they were not the popular, they were not on and on and on. They were sick, they were lame, they were blind, they were female, they were, you name it, Jesus pulled all of them in. That's who he ate with and talked to and taught and healed. And those of us who aren't really outcasts, need to remember that we are invited to be part of that kind of graceful living in this world as well. And that theme did not start with Jesus. We see it again and again and again, and right here, David's story is explicit. All right, any last questions or thoughts before I try to do the next section in five minutes? Okay, section number three. David and Saul. I will talk about David and Saul's relationship multiple times over the next couple weeks. So we don't have to do everything right now, but it's enough to just plant the seed that 
It's a weird dynamic between David and Saul. And I mean, Viola named it. Saul is still king. And yet Samuel's gone off and anointed David to be king. Well, who's not going to like that the most? <laughs> Saul. And so we know, as the way that the story is told, that Saul is at some point going to find out what Samuel did and who David has been anointed to become. And Saul is not a person who takes that kind of stuff lying down. Samuel knew because when God said, hey, go anoint the new king, Samuel said, how can I go do that? Saul's going to kill me. And so you thought dragging the cow down the street was going to be enough to protect Samuel. I mean, David at some point is going to become a target. Well, we see right now that David does not shy away from being around Saul. So in the last couple minutes, turn to verse 14 of chapter 16. I'm going to read this, say just one word, and then we're going to be done. Verse 14. Right after Samuel anoints David, we get verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Dang. And Saul's servant said to him, See now, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command the servants who attend to you, look for someone who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the evil spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will feel better. So Saul sent his servants, provide for me. Oh, I'm sorry. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me someone who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing a man of valor, a warrior, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a kid, and sent them by his son David to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul loved him greatly, and he became an armor-bearer. Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the evil spirit from God came upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand, and Saul would be relieved and feel better, and the evil spirit would depart from him. We'll pause there. So in 90 seconds, let me just say, this is a very strange way to tell this story. I can remember the first time I really read this passage, like old enough to begin to understand the weirdness. I was probably like, you know, kind of late teenager. Um, I thought, first off, this is not fair to Saul. I mean, Saul's not a, the best, but the idea that God's spirit departs from Saul and an evil spirit fills him up, I mean, Saul's got no chance. And the way the story is told, God sure does seem mean. And so it's important for us to say, to ask the question, do we know through Jesus that God is mean? The answer is no. Okay, yeah, you're all like, what's the answer? Um, no, the answer is no. And so as we read the story and we think, man, God's mean today. No, that's not what's happening here. But obviously something was happening with Saul. Saul was beginning to I don't know, come apart in some way. He, who knows? It could have been migraines. It could have been mental illness. It could have been whatever. I mean, we can put any label on it, but somehow Saul was beginning to lose his capacity to be king. Well, in walks David, 
And David's able to do something that calms Saul and centers Saul and helps him not hurt other people. So as the story's being told, it sure does sound like God's doing this intentionally because of the purposes to put David up as king. That is enough for today, but we're going to pick that up next week so that we can continue the dynamic relationship. And the next thing that happens really kind of sets Saul off because the Philistines are back on the scene with their big champion, Goliath. And we'll get to that next week. I hope you all have a wonderful week. See you next week.